I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick an obscure topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is Illuminati New World Order. What is Illuminati New World Order? Well, it's a collectible card game by Steve Jackson Games, creators of Munchkin, Ogre, GURPS, and Zombie Dice, where each player takes control of various shadowy conspiracy groups and competes to take over the world by deploying deep state-like plans to control the population with misinformation, false flag events, and other tropes of the conspiracy theory world. The game features over 400 cards that each depict references to real-world events, such as a card that seems to allude to the September 11th attack on the Twin Towers in 2001, or a card that seems to reference the belief that the current COVID-19 pandemic is a hoax. The only problem? The game and all of these cards were released in 1994. One, hand-illustrated collectible trading cards, or it didn't happen. What if one of your ideas came to life? What if you woke up one day and discovered a giant, snake-like, undulated creature with millions of heads slithering in the damp darkness under a rock in your backyard? What if the creature came from inside your mind, but it had grown and deformed into something grotesque and nearly unrecognizable, but somewhere underneath the ugliness, you recognized a bit of yourself? This isn't some high-concept Philip K. Dick short story. It's a story about the world we live in. It's a story about the concept of an idea in the age of social media algorithms and post-truth society, where an idea essentially becomes an elevator pitch for a religion. We live in a world where ideas are no longer blueprints for personal action. They become catalysts for living, breathing, sentient hive minds to take shape in the caverns of internet image boards and Facebook groups. They become pilot episodes for social and political movements, A random housewife in a flyover state can, in her paranoid vacuum of boredom, start to think that a bunch of cabinets being sold by Wayfair.com have names that sound an awful lot like people names. And less than 12 hours later, there can be a massive movement formed to expose the deep state child trafficking ring being run within the website. All because someone thought it. That snake-like sentient being with millions of heads is an idea infecting and radicalizing. And the most surreal thing is that you don't even have to be a part of the movement after expressing the thought. We don't own our ideas once they've gone out into the ether. An idea is no longer a platform for us to stand on. It's just become its own thing, ricocheting out into the universe. Several years ago, Google started requiring that you had to have a Google Plus account in order to have a YouTube account. It was an attempt to get people to migrate over to their flailing social media platform by essentially forcing anyone who wanted to use YouTube to be automatically signed up. But it didn't work. Millions of people had accounts for a website that literally nobody went to. At the time, I made a joke that we were all famous on Google Plus and we didn't even know it. I didn't know how strangely accurate to our time that concept would become. Just ask Matt Fury, who, in 2005, created the character Pepe the Frog for his webcomic Boys Club No. 1, only for it to slowly become used as a meme and then ultimately co-opted during the 2016 presidential election cycle as an icon for white supremacy. It was even recognized as a hate symbol by the Anti-Defamation League, Imagine drawing a cute frog that likes saying feels good man 
and then waking up one day and discovering that you accidentally helped galvanize an army of Nazis. That's horrifying, but it's our world now. Somebody else who understands this all too much is Steve Jackson, owner of Steve Jackson Games, a board and trading card game company based in Austin, Texas. Also, as we'll come to discuss, possibly a deep state member of the Illuminati? Steve Jackson was born in 1953. His hometown is so deliberately left off of his online biographies that it almost feels like he doesn't want us to know, perhaps for a good reason. What we do know about him is what he said about himself in the official bio you can find buried on his personal website that looks like it was never updated after 1996. The bio itself hasn't been updated since 2010, according to a timestamp. Steve Jackson graduated from Rice University in Houston. While there, he spent most of his time playing war games and working on the student paper The Thresher. He spent two years as the editor. He became a writer and game publisher, proving that college can only be valuable as long as you don't let classes get in the way. He has survived involvements in the Republican Party, alternate delegate to the 1972 convention, but he got better, don't worry. He now considers himself a small L libertarian. The SCA, former land baron and national chronicler, and law school escaping before the bar exam, game design was more fun. We also know that he's been an avid fan of all things geeky since he was a child. In addition to being obsessed with gaming, which inspired him to get into the field, he is a dedicated science fiction reader and fan, and enjoys attending both gaming and science fiction conventions. He writes filk songs, which are essentially folk songs about science fiction fandom, potentially the single nerdiest thing you could possibly do in existence. His other interests include gardening, Lego, pirates, trains, beekeeping, dinosaurs, and tropical fish. After college, he started working at Metagaming Concepts, a board game company that operated between 1974 and 1983. While there, he worked on various games such as Monsters, Monsters, and Godfire. He eventually went on to design his own games for the company such as Ogre, GEV, Melee, and Wizard. During this time, Jackson wanted to gain a better understanding of the mechanics of real-life combat, so he joined the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism, a national living history group dedicated to studying and recreating medieval European cultures and their histories before the 17th century, and started fighting in SCA live-action combat as Vargskal, the Viking Celt. Never mind about the filk songs. The final game Jackson worked on at Metagaming was called The Fantasy Trip, his answer to the massively popular Dungeons & Dragons, which was meant to compete with the Smash success but improve on its combat mechanics. While the game was originally scheduled for release in February of 1978, the design and development required more work than Jackson had anticipated, and the game was not released until March of 1980. Howard Thompson, owner of Metagaming, decided to release the Fantasy Trip as four separate books instead of a box set, and changed his production methods so that Jackson would not be able to check the final proofs of the game. As a result of these actions, Jackson left Metagaming. And then in 1980, he founded Steve Jackson Games. Well, we're in... Indie game publisher, uh, incorporated in 1980, and so we've been going for 40 years now. I had no idea that it was going to last this long or be this much fun. The small gaming company published several games throughout the 1980s, including their own editions of Ogre, GEV, and Wizard, Raid on Iran, Car Wars, Undead, and many others. They went on to experience even bigger success in the 2000s with the release of the incredibly popular dungeon-crawling card game Munchkin and the quick pickup dice game Zombie Dice. But in 1983, there was one game published by Steve Jackson Games that would end up sending out ideological reverberations years into the future on a website that Jackson couldn't even have fathomed at the time. The game was Illuminati, the game of conspiracy. In September of 1981, 
Steve Jackson and his regular freelance cover artist Dave Martin discovered the shared admiration of the Illuminatus Trilogy. The Illuminatus Trilogy is a series of three novels by American writers Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson, which first published in 1975. The trilogy is a satirical, postmodern, science fiction-influenced adventure story, a drug, sex, and magic-laden trek through a number of conspiracy theories, both historical and imaginary, related to the author's version of the Illuminati. I was sitting with Dave Martin, who had done some of our covers, and we were drinking wine and talking about everything in the world, and the subject of the Illuminati trilogy came up. And he said, you ought to make a game about that. And I said, there's no way we could make a game based on the Illuminatus trilogy. It's wonderful books that are full of incident with, with no, no detectable arc. And it was considerably later that I realized that uh, going back to the sources, uh, the myths of the Illuminati was a productive approach. After researching the Illuminati and conspiracy theories and quote-unquote extensive and enthusiastic playtesting, it went on the market in July of 1982. The game is played with a deck of special cards, money chips representing millions of dollars in low-denomination unmarked banknotes, and two six-sided dice. The three types of cards in the deck are Illuminati, Groups, and special cards. The player take the role of the Illuminati societies that struggle to take over the world. The original edition of the game depicted six Illuminati groups, the Bavarian Illuminati, the Discordant Society, UFOs, Servants of Cthulhu, Bermuda Triangle, and the Gnomes of Zurich. The Deluxe Edition added Society of Assassins, the Network, and in the Illuminati Y2K expansion, added the Church of the Subgenius and Shangri-La. The world is represented by group cards, such as Secret Masters of Fandom, CIA, the International Communist Conspiracy, Evil Geniuses for a Better Tomorrow, California, and many more. The aim of the game is fulfilled when the Illuminati build a power structure consisting of a given number of cards, dependent on the number of players, or when the Illuminati fulfill a special goal. The primary Illuminati player actively is taking control of groups. Other types of attacks are attacks to neutralize and attack to destroy. Besides attacking groups, the player can trade, form alliances, and many other activities. Tactics such as playing opponents off of each other, backstabbing, and concealing your true motives are highly encouraged in the game. In one variant of the game, players are allowed to cheat, steal money from the table, and do anything it takes to win. The original game consisted of 52 cards, but has grown to over 300 with additional expansion sets over the years. But when originally released in the 80s, it was considered a solid hit for SJ Games. It's become somewhat of a cult hit in the intervening years, even eventually being mentioned in Angels and Demons, Dan Brown's follow-up to his smash hit conspiracy thriller novel, The Da Vinci Code. But this isn't actually the game that is the subject of this episode. Amongst all the sites, articles, and interviews covering this weird story, almost all of them get this detail wrong. The original 52-card standalone game is almost always credited as being the game that predicted 9-11, but it's not. That didn't happen until the early 90s. The popularity of tabletop RPGs and more involved board and card games had diminished slightly, their market shares being slowly eaten up by the growing wave of home console video games and the quick, pick-up-and-play low-commitment board games like Clue and Battleship, which had enjoyed a renewed surge in popularity. However, that all changed with one game, Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering is a collectible card game created by Richard Garfield, released in 1993 by Wizards of the Coast, who also published the aforementioned Dungeons and Dragons. Magic involved two or more players who are engaged in a battle acting as powerful wizards called Planeswalkers. Not only did MTG put involved tabletop gaming back on the map, it catapulted it to heights of popularity that the medium had never seen. 
even with Dungeons & Dragons, and literally created the collectible card game genre. Why? Because it came during a particular time in the 90s when people were, for whatever reason, obsessed with collecting things. Remember Beanie Babies, or Pogs, or Treasure Trolls, or Quarter Machine Homies? Remember the early 90s comic book speculator boom where comic companies cranked out multiple variant covers to each issue of a comic they released and raked in a mint on people buying each version under the false delusion that they would one day be worth millions of dollars? For some reason, we all lost our minds and became hoarders in the 90s. And MTG was right there to tap into the zeitgeist and cause an explosion in popularity of collectible trading card games that eventually led to Pokemon, Digimon, and Yu-Gi-Oh! At that point in 1994, everyone was desperately looking for their version of Magic. Everyone except Steve Jackson, though, who felt like SJ Games had missed the collectible card game boat and wasn't planning on releasing one. That is until a young upstart game designer named Derek Piercy started working at the company and knew they needed to get on the CCG train, but fast. Um, I came into Steve Jackson Games after they'd already actually been quite successful at Car Wars, like as Steve said, was a was a was a real phenomenon, um, and uh, Illuminati had put out several several expansion sets and then the deluxe Illuminati collecting them together. When we hit upon the, the first collectible trading card game, Magic the Gathering, it, it seemed like a it seemed like an excellent opportunity to try and take Illuminati and, and uh, scale it out to a to a much broader audience. We just we we just love the game. I I found I, I ran into Illuminati when I was in high school and got a design degree and got a job at Steve Jackson Games, converting them from a, a traditional sort of paste up shop into a digital prepress operation. And it seemed like the most reasonable thing to do with uh, new color prepress options. He had an idea and pitched it to Jackson one day. They already had the perfect groundwork for an awesome CCG right under their nose, a self-contained game about shadowy conspiracy groups plotting to take over the world that was released in the early 80s, Illuminati. Piercy's pitch was to take the game and expand it to a full-fledged collectible card game. Although still a little dubious, Jackson was convinced by the pitch and agreed. What was the resistance initially, Steve? Why did you have to be won over? What was your kind of wall with the idea? What were you bumping on? I thought we were too late to the party. I feared that CCGs were a fad and that the crest of the wave had passed while we sat and watched. Thankfully, that wasn't the case, but what, like, was that immediately you were like, oh, thank God we did this, I was wrong? Or was it kind of like a gradual, like, oh, no, I think we, oh, oh, oh no, great, it worked. Well, when the game became good, I felt better. And when we looked at the pre-sales numbers, I felt much better. SJ Games would produce an Illuminati CCG. There was only one catch, though. They had waited so long to jump into the CCG pool that they couldn't take their sweet time slowly wading into the shallow end trying to get used to the water. They had to dive right into the deep end with their clothes on and their giant 1990 cell phones still in their pockets. They didn't have a couple years or even a full year to design the mechanics, hand draw art for hundreds of cards, meticulously playtest, and balance the gameplay. It was probably mm, like top three most intense experiences in my professional life, for sure. We didn't have a lot of time to, uh, to actually do the game. The Steve had been working on it, mulling it over for a couple of months. When it came time to actually do everything you have to do to make a card game of 435 cards, uh, we didn't have a lot of time. I had to, we had to train people to, to color art. Um, you know, back at the time, of course, Magic the Gathering set the, the, the bar really high with your beautiful painted cards. We'd never produced a full color card game, much less one with sort of 
that kind of high level of quality. Steve let me hire a friend of mine from uh, from Houston who just uh, gotten out of art school and he never used a computer before, but he knew about art. So I taught him how to use a computer. And between the two, the two of us and Jeff Koki, who I also then uh, showed how to how to color art, we had, let's see, we were working about like 10 to 16 hour days, six or seven days a week for about two and a half months to get all the art in from the artist, scanned, cleaned up, colored, revised. Derek Piercy and the team even invented a couple new techniques that had never really been done before in order to tackle the massive undertaking in such a short period of time. Piercy used his skills as a coder to develop a computer database where each of the cards, their stats, and other information about the game was stored. In this way, someone could run simple queries of the database and, in an instant, find out such things as how many conservatives or liberal groups the game had in order to quickly check the game for proper mechanics balance. It was also the first game to have every single piece of art hand-drawn, digitally scanned, and then colored entirely in Photoshop. So, like, color scanners were really, really expensive. And um, color printing was really expensive. And so, trying to take a, a photo and, and scan it was 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 a huge pain and the the colors we could make because we had control over the actual pixels in photoshop we could make the colors much more vibrant and much more clear than a scanned photo or even a scanned painting uh, uh, in many ways at the time we also we had control over the over the line screen that we used as well so we were able to optimize that uh to to really make things pop that's really cool that you guys figured out how to do that, like just sort of invented that process yourself for the sake of just making one card game. But despite these ingenious shortcuts, the project was still a massive undertaking. Derek and his team worked tirelessly around the clock, white knuckling it through the development of the game in order to just barely finish before their deadline. The game was released in 1994 under the title Illuminati New World Order. This first run of the game consisted of approximately 425 cards. In the game, players attempt to achieve world domination by utilizing the power of their chosen Illuminati, the Adepts of Hermes, the Bavarian Illuminati, the Bermuda Triangle, the Discordian Society, the Gnomes of Zurich, the Network, the Punisher-targeted individuals, Servants of Cthulhu, Shangri-La, and the UFOs. The first player to control a predetermined number of organizations, usually 12 in a standard game, has achieved the basic goal and can claim victory. Upon release, the game was another hit for SJ Games. While never reaching the height of popularity of Magic, and especially not Pokemon, which immediately eclipsed the first wave of CCGs that Illuminati New World Order was a part of when it released, it developed a solid following. Over the next few years, the game released multiple new expansions and generally enjoyed a good run. Eventually, the starter set for the games went out of print, and Inwo, like so many CCGs that popped up in the wake of Magic's success, kind of faded into obscurity. SJ Games moved on as well, eventually developing their most successful game to date, Munchkin, in 2001. Munchkin blew up in the early 2000s, and for SJ Games, Inwo became old news. But something else happened in 2001, and in the wake of that tragic event, Inwo would be coming back into relevance in a way that Steve Jackson could have never anticipated, and he would unintentionally become seen as a prophet. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. Some of you might be too young to have experienced it, but there was a world before September 11th, 2001 and a world after. The likes of which we never saw again until the recent COVID-19 pandemic. One day, everyone was just kind of chilling in one of the least eventful periods in history, watching movies and playing Pokemon. And the next? The news became a 24-hour cycle covering one single event from multiple angles for the first time ever. It was terrifying to think of getting on an airplane, and if you did, you had to submit yourself to walking through a gauntlet of security checks that could take hours, which just simply wasn't the case before. Getting on a plane used to be as easy as riding a bus. Rampant, widespread xenophobia and racism invaded the public consciousness and infected everything from politics to music to films. Patriotism became a personality. Collectively experienced PTSD became a thing. And, for possibly the first time ever, conspiracy theories became mainstream. Previously exclusive to fringe paranoid maniacs who had stumbled across Behold the Pale Horse in the bottom of a used bookstore bargain bin in the 90s, or X-Files fans who were fascinated by said fringe weirdos and participated in the community like they were playing fantasy football, you could now, as a common occurrence, get a chain email from your goofy aunt who was obsessed with Tweety Bird that contained the phrase, Jet Fuel Doesn't Melt Steel Beams. 9-11 was an inside job. This sentence was a cultural awakening that led the United States down a long, slippery, 20-year slope that slowly and subtly redesignated the borderlines of what constitutes truth, how much factual evidence is required to believe something, and the status quo of trust we place in basically any source of information. In short, 9-11 pretty much completely psychologically fucked us up as a society, and we never really recovered. We've exponentially become a fragmented consortium of emotionally broken people who increasingly discover with every shift of the Overton window that we cannot agree on one single shared reality. So instead, we splinter off further and further away from each other until the mere experience of interacting outside of our bubbles is just cognitive dissonance for everyone. This is the context into which Illuminati New World Order started getting mentioned in certain pockets of the internet again. But it wasn't because of a new booster pack that was released or a change to the meta or the outcome of a tournament. Steve Jackson and SJ Games became aware of a growing group of people that believed that they had known 9-11 was coming in the early 90s, and that proof was in the artwork for Inwo. This is ground zero, no pun intended, for the theory that Inwo had somehow predicted several future events over the next several years. The theory goes as follows. Steve Jackson was a member of the Illuminati, or a double agent that had infiltrated the Illuminati, and he had started Steve Jackson Games and created Illuminati New World Order as a way of secretly leaking information about all of the upcoming plans and events that would inevitably usher in the coming of the New World Order. A shadowy cabal of deep state members typically believed to be cannibalistic Satanists that will one day reveal themselves, seize control of the entire world, and align every country under a one-world totalitarian government. They're essentially a supergroup of every conspiracy theory ever concocted about the deep state and every belief about secret ulterior motives behind all global catastrophes. Kind of like the damn Yankees of creepy conspiracy shit. Except even the Illuminati wouldn't give Ted Nugent membership at this point. So Steve and and Derek as well, you know, as one of the key figures in the game, what point did you start hearing 
these conspiracies that people believed that the game you know predicted events you know what what is your level of knowledge of that and, and when did you start really hearing about that stuff well we looked too deeply into the abyss and the abyss looked back into us <laughs> and it babbled you're not wrong i i didn't actually so i was uh spending a lot of my time locking down networks for uh, large financial organizations and um, uh, U.S. military bases, and was a little too busy to be preoccupied by all of that. Right after 9/11, it was only um, it was only a little while after that that I that uh, I was reminded of of what we had done, and I went and looked back up at the at the at the, at the card art. the The very first piece of card art that I that I worked on. Uh, is the one that that uh, that people actually bring up most often, the one with the World Trade Center, and that that was originally was done as a as as a as sort of a proof of concept that we really could convincingly color the art so that it would look vivid and and have a lot of depth. You know, we have this explosion in the middle of the in the middle of the card. And so I spent a lot of time on that one just saying, ah yes, look, I think we can we can do this. But it it was it was weird um then to see that come up um after the fact. So in what way exactly did Inwo predict 9-11? Well, it comes down to two cards produced as part of the original Inwo starter set in nineteen ninety four titled Terrorist Nuke and Pentagon. Describe these cards for us, Davy Boy. The Pentagon card is a card that shows an illustration of the Pentagon, and in the center of it is a mushroom cloud-like massive explosion reaching up to the heavens, um, and uh, it's very apparent that there's been some sort of bomb or um, something has crashed into it and it's exploded. The terrorist nuke is um, two buildings that vaguely resemble the Twin Towers, they're two skyscrapers and they, they, they're kind of, you can see the other buildings in the background of, of some sort of urban landscape, but these two buildings are significantly taller. And uh, in the middle of the building on the right, there's an explosion ripping through one of the floors, um, which is very evocative and does call to mind the images of 9-11 when the, when the plane flew into the tower. The artwork in the cards is immediately uncanny, and at first blush to someone who is already looking for patterns like this in everyday life, seems like there's no other possible explanation than that these cards literally predicted the September 11th attacks. I mean, come on, it's a picture of the Twin Towers with the North Tower being bombed first, just like what happened in real life and a picture of the Pentagon with just the center of the building being bombed and the outer lying parts of the building being left untouched, just like what happened in real life. This would plant a seed that eventually grew into a network of theories about Inwo's cards. Every time a new tragic or political event occurred, someone would find an Inwo card made in 1994 that depicted the exact event happening in exactly the way it happened. The cards were flawless in how they predicted event after event over the next few decades. So how did this theory even start? Who was the first one to notice the pattern and recognize the shadowy plan that Inwo had revealed to us from the very start? Like so many first five minutes of an Edgar Wright Simon Pegg film. Well, while that's not known exactly, one of the first high-profile figures to put forth this theory was none other than our man, the reptilian rapscallion himself, 
David Icke. If you don't know, David Icke is a British former soccer player sports commentator who took a hard left turn in his career in the early 90s after visiting a psychic who told him that he had been put on Earth for a special purpose and began touring the world and selling books preaching that our universe is secretly governed by an extra-dimensional race of reptilian overlords. At some point in the 2000s, Ike released a series of writings examining various cards from Inwo and deciphering their hidden meanings. Unfortunately, these writings have been seemingly scrubbed from the internet and only referenced in other writings, which makes sense because Ike has been banned from dozens of social media platforms and hosting servers over the years for spreading his unsubstantiated misinformation. However, there is some circumstantial mention of Ike's theories about the cards that exist deep in the hidden crevices of a hyper-religious New World Order doomsday blog called CuttingEdge.org. Cutting Edge is a website devoted to preaching about the impending rise of the New World Order and how it ties into biblical scripture and the religious belief about the end times. Similar to Steve Jackson's, the website looks like it was created in 1996 on a geocities.com account and never updated since then. Sometime in the early to mid-2000s, they published a comprehensive five-part series examining Inwo and how it step-by-step -step predicts the chess moves the Illuminati is making to bring about the New World Order. The series of articles is called Smoking Gun Proof That Illuminati Planned to Attack on 9-11 and Beyond Was Well Known As Far Back As 1995. Great title for an article. Very, yeah. very snappy. Very yeah, very uh, SEO friendly. So we're going to take a look at the bulk of this article, which is basically looking at nine of the cards and breaking down the meaning of them in this Illuminati grand master plan. The Rewriting History Card with artwork depicting school textbooks in a trash can in a classroom. The Illuminati realized they had to deceive an entire population of people if they had any hope whatsoever of achieving their coveted New World Order. They realized that the public schools were graduating students who read too well, too widely, and communicated too well. These students generally distrusted big government and government authority. Clearly, the Illuminati had to gain control of the public school system from the foundation upward if they had any hope of instituting a one-world government that would serve the New Age Masonic Christ. As early as 1911, the Illuminati began buying textbook writing companies until they owned them all after World War I. Once they got control of the textbooks, they gradually began to dumb down the curricula and rewrite history. Today, students of public schools since World War II have received increasingly inferior educations. Until now, the population is largely academically inferior, is political herds of sheeple, and religiously ignorant of the truth of Jesus Christ. The Terrorist Nuke Card with artwork depicting two large skyscrapers, one of them being exploded through the middle by a large atomic blast. This card is one of the most shocking of all, especially in light of the fact that this game first hit the specialty stores in 1995. How in the world did Steve Jackson know that the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center were going to be attacked? In fact, this card accurately depicted the World Trade Center attack in great detail. This card accurately depicts several facts of 9-11 on cards created all the way back in 1995. This picture accurately depicts that one tower was going to be struck first. However, what does the caption to this card mean? It says terrorist nuke. Now, what could this possibly mean? The Twin Towers were not destroyed by a terrorist nuclear device. Or were they? In our article on the Bali blast, we noted the scientific data that suggested the hotel was taken down by a micro-nuclear device of about 0.10 kilotons. One could only ask, was a micro-nuclear device used at the base of the Twin Towers as well? That kind of small but nuclear explosion would account for the sudden manner the reinforced concrete and steel shells simply crumbled into dust as it fell. The Pentagon card, depicting the United States Pentagon with a mushroom cloud erupting from the center of the building and the outer lying perimeter of the building left untouched. 
When I saw this card, immediately after seeing the Twin Tower picture, my blood froze. Unless one had advanced knowledge of the Illuminati plan, there is no way on earth they would have been able to create pictures in 1995 that accurately depict the unfolding events of 9-11. The Pentagon is shown on fire. We know that a plane allegedly flew into a section of the Pentagon and nearly burned that section completely. However, the rest of the Pentagon was undamaged to the point where its functions continued unimpeded. Thus, these two cards literally depict both of the strikes of 9-11, against the Twin Towers first and then against the Pentagon. The Population Reduction card, with artwork depicting a city skyline with a skull-shaped smoke plume hanging in the background. Even though the headline on this card says Population Reduction, the scene depicted shows clearly the Twin Towers under attack. With the Twin Towers under attack and the tops of them hidden by the black smoke, the New York Empire State Building is again the tallest building in the city. Further, notice that the smoke is shaped in the form of a demon's face. This is highly significant for several reasons. During the filming of the actual fire pouring forth from the Twin Towers, several cameras caught what seemed to be a demon face in the smoke. While most people were discounting this face as purely coincidental, two former Satanists called me within a couple of hours of after those pictures were released to tell me that those faces looked exactly like demons they had seen during a ritual when demons physically manifest themselves in this dimension. The Center for Disease Control card, with artwork depicting a scientist triumphantly holding up some kind of data on a piece of paper with bubbling chemicals in the foreground. Quote, as its action, the CDC can supply relief to one devastated location. If the CDC makes a direct attack to destroy a place, it can use biological warfare and get a plus 15 to its attack. End quote. Don't you find it highly interesting that this game foresees the CDC creating and launching a biological weapon on a place? In the earlier parts of this article, we posted the very important question as to who would launch a smallpox attack upon us if Iraq, North Korea, Al-Qaeda, Syria, and other rogue states are unable to launch a weaponized smallpox attack. This card seems to answer this question. The CDC will launch the attack. Of course, our authorities will undoubtedly accuse either Iraq or terrorists from this smallpox attack. In more recent interpretations of this card, it's been theorized that it's predicting the fact that the CDC somehow manufactured the COVID-19 pandemic. The Epidemic card, with artwork depicting the word quarantine, gloves, a mask, some vaccines, and other medications. Quote, Disaster. This is an attack to destroy any place. It does not require an action. Its power is 14. This is not an instant attack. If the attack succeeds, the target is devastated. The wording on this card, not an instant attack, seems to imply that the attack will occur silently, with people getting sick at different times well after the attack. This wording seems perilously close to the New World Order plan. This card has also been looked at more recently as evidence that the game predicted the COVID-19 pandemic. The Combined Disasters card, with artwork depicting a group of people running around in chaos with explosions and debris and a giant clock tower falling behind them. Once again, how did this inventor of role-playing games know that, in addition to planned attacks on 9-11 and infectious diseases, the Illuminati has a myriad of other planned disasters that, when combined, they will so panic the peoples of the world that they will allow their liberties to be taken away and their freely elected governments to be abolished. Also more recently, this card has been used as evidence to show that the game was able to predict the general combined disasters nature of 2020. The Kill for Peace card, with artwork depicting two hippie protesters holding up peace picket signs, sneering down at a police officer who's on the floor as if he's groveling in front of them. How did this inventor know to connect the appearance of Antichrist with the phrase, kill for peace? The broken cross is a symbol of Antichrist, and of the witchcraft he will practice. 
Therefore, this symbol means that the appearance of Antichrist is tied in with the seemingly paradoxical goal of achieving peace. And in more recent months, this card has been looked at as having predicted the current protests related to Black Lives Matter and police brutality. The Tape Runs Out card, with artwork depicting the Earth exploding in half with a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine in the front with the tape having just run out. Even though I was surprised at the detail of the other cards, the inclusion of this Rapture card shocked me greatly. The Rapture is something the born-again Christians are aching for, not the Illuminati. But then, I remembered an article I posted nearly five years ago entitled, The Rapture of the Church May Be Close and Both Sides Are Waiting For It. In this article, I made the following very pertinent points. Occultists are looking forward to the Rapture, having been alerted by their guiding spirits that such an event would occur. Beginning in 1987, guiding spirits of key New World Order leaders begin to inform these human leaders to start preparing their adherents for a spectacular global event that would occur just after the New Age Christ, Antichrist, will make his appearance. What was this spectacular event to be? As these guiding spirits explained, when the Christ appears, there will be many people throughout the world that could never accept his views or his teachings. These people would prove to be a great obstacle in the way the New Age Christ wanted to move the people of the world. Therefore, the masters of the Logos had decided, these guiding spirits said, to suddenly snap these people into another dimension. Yeah, it's interesting how those things kind of get merged together where it's, it's there's the, the freedom of information and the access that everybody has now has just kind of like rapidly increased and increased and increased. And with that increased access to everything, it's almost kind of like the division, like the dividing walls have gotten lower and lower and lower. And there's all of these big kind of like areas of interest that have just slowly kind of like grown together in some way, which is really weird and fascinating to me. That's true. Yeah, I think that is what it is. It's it's, it's because of the types of people who tend to believe in all of those fairly disparate things once you, you know, said it, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> once the once the uh, advent of nicely though, I will say it. Yeah, <laughs> please, please, Steve, please say it, and then we'll cut out me saying it and present it as if you were the one that said it. <laughs> right, like you said, it's <laughs> oh, all the people who are attracted to this. Yeah. Okay. So, Exhibit A, the cards, the uncanny similarities between what's depicted in the artwork and real-life catastrophic events that occurred years after the game was published. The added context that David Icke and CuttingEdge.org have given to each card, interpreting with scripture to cement that the game was explaining each step in a sequence that will one day bring about the rise of the New World Order and the coming of the Biblical Rapture. Exhibit B? Well, what about the fact that this article from CuttingEdge.org was literally found on Osama Bin Laden's computer? Yes, the way we found this article was not from the actual website it was published on, but rather from the official CIA website. In 2017, the CIA released the Abbottabad compound material, aka a 16GB dump of all the files found on the computer hard drives recovered from Osama bin Laden's compound after he had been assassinated by the US military. And one of these files is a PDF version of the entire CuttingEdge.org and Illuminati blog post. Yes, Osama bin Laden read a PDF export of an internet article about the conspiracy theory that a trading card game predicted that the terrorist bombing he orchestrated was actually done by the US government. Oh, is your hair thinning a little at the top? Might I suggest trying on for Hoven's toupee? That, I had a moment where I was like, Osama bin Laden? <laughs> was was curious about that. Um, I mean, I, I, I presume someone sent it to him because it was amusing. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I was telling another friend of mine, another game game designer. He said, "Wow, you know, I never thought Osama bin Laden would be a nine eleven truther. That's really strange." <laughs> <laughs> a PDF copy of 
this article was was found on Osama bin Laden's hard drive and uh-huh. it's it's available on the CIA website as part of the complete list of documents that were recovered from bin Laden's compound. Derek, Osama wanted to know how we'd found him out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a good thing he never found out. Yeah. Can you just imagine like one of like Osama's homies comes over and he's got like a thumb drive and he's like, Osama, bro, you got to check this out. <laughs> this is crazy, bro. Look at this shit. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's exactly what did happen. <laughs> yeah, it did. Like, that's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. Like, I I cannot even imagine being in your guys place and waking up one morning and being like, Osama bin Laden has a PDF about the game that we made. Like, that is so unreal. Like, I can't even wrap my head around that. I don't um, even, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing or indifferent or just like a weird, it's, it's just, just so thing. It does. It's not connected with anything. It's just a thing. It's interesting because I think the interesting part about it is not that it's secretly part of some conspiracy. And it's funny because we talk about these, we, we, we do episodes where we talk about conspiracies uh, sometimes and there's always like a real story underneath it that I actually find more interesting than the conspiracy like this this mass conspiracy that people believe I actually find the real stories tend to be more interesting to me and it's funny because that aspect of it bin laden was reading it because he wanted to find out how you figured him out or whatever what's more interesting to me is the fact that basically people willed that into existence the fact that bin laden was reading that article about your game is because of all of the people who saw your game and started coming up with these conspiracy theories and they essentially willed that into existence. A bunch of random crazy people who read way too far into the game that you guys made in the 90s, they caused Bin Laden to read that article about your game just by putting ideas out into the ether, which I find so fascinating. But maybe it's all one big coincidence. Sure, the cards have some pretty odd similarities to future events, but you could chalk that up to dumb luck. And of course, Bin Laden would have a copy of this article. He was the first high-profile terrorist that existed in the age of the internet. He was probably Googling himself on a daily basis. But how about Exhibit C? The fact that, in 1990, a few years before Inwo actually dropped, Steve Jackson Games was raided by the Secret Service. Three, in Soviet Russia, kayfabe breaks you. On the morning of March 1st, 1990, without warning, a force of armed Secret Service agents, accompanied by Austin police and at least one civilian, in air quotes, expert from a phone company, occupied the offices of Steve Jackson Games and began to search for computer equipment. The home of Lloyd Blankenship was also raided. A large amount of equipment was seized, including four computers, two laser printers, some loose hard disks, and a great deal of assorted hardware. One of the computers was running the Illuminati BBS. The only computers taken were those with GURPS cyberpunk files on them. Other systems were left in place. In their diligent search for evidence, the agents also cut off locks, forced open footlockers, tore up dozens of boxes in the warehouse, and bent two of the office letter openers attempting to pick locks on a file cabinet. Lloyd Blankenship, born 1965, better known by his pseudonym, The Mentor, 
is a well-known computer hacker and writer. He has been active since the 1970s when he was a member of the hacker groups Ecstasy Elite and Legion of Doom. He is the author of The Hacker Manifesto, a 1986 essay that is considered a cornerstone of hacker culture and acts as a guideline to hackers across the globe, especially those new to the field. It serves as an ethical foundation for hacking and asserts that there is a point to hacking that supersedes selfish desires to exploit or harm other people, and that technology should be used to expand our horizons and try to keep the world free. It was written after Blankenship's arrest for illegally infiltrating a computer. So what does a notorious hacker have to do with Steve Jackson games or the Secret Service raid? I mean, just think about it. The Illuminati, cryptic codes hidden in the artwork of a card game, the Secret Service, computer hackers, an international terrorist who committed one of the worst atrocities in U.S. history, a flashbang office raid involving sensitive data being confiscated. This has all the makings of one of the most uncanny conspiracies of all time. And the whole thing is confirmed as true, no less. It's all on official record. There's no way this isn't all true, right? There's no other explanation. Inwo is a coded set of clues explaining how the New World Order will be established, right? The Illuminati got wind of what Jackson was planning to reveal to the world with his cards and tried to silence him. It all just makes emotional sense. Well, here's the thing. Blankenship wasn't some random hacker mysteriously connected with the company. He had been hired in 1989 by Jackson as a game writer, and he worked for SJ Games. He was the writer of GURP Cyberpunk, and he also ran the company's BBS, or bulletin board system, for the Illuminati game. So why did the Secret Service actually raid SJ Games? Uh, basically, uh, some teenage hackers went into an unsecured computer that belonged to Bell South, made a copy of a file. Bell South panicked and called the FBI for help. The FBI told them to run along. Bell South called the Secret Service, and the Secret Service said, Squirrel, squirrel, show us the squirrel. <laughs> and one thing led to another, and another thing led to another thing. And before you knew it, a company that employed an acquaintance online of one of the hackers that had made a copy of the file was getting raided. It was a huge blunder. When we finally got it into court, the judge, Judge Sparks, got so angry at the Secret Service's uh, attorney and their testimony that he took over the questioning himself and he started asking the really hard questions. They had no idea what they were doing, but they were the Secret Service, so it had to be okay, right? In October of 1988, the phone company Bell South was alerted that a document related to their 911 system had been uploaded to a BBS in Illinois. It was reported to the Secret Service in July of 1989. In February of 1990, the Secret Service found that the document had been posted on the Phoenix Project BBS in Austin, Texas, which was operated by Lloyd Blankenship, or the mentor. The Secret Service believed there was probable cause to search computers belonging to Blankenship and his employer, and a search warrant was issued on February 28th. Because of the nature of the breach, and because the game that Blankenship was writing was literally about hackers in the future committing credit card fraud, the Secret Service interpreted GURP Cyberpunk as some sort of guilty admittance in plain sight that Blankenship was committing tons of illegal hacking crimes, and thought it'd be a nice feather in their cap to take him and the supposed front for his operation SJ Games down. The raid was actually part of a larger, ill-advised effort in the early 90s to crack down on the abuses of data privacy by the Secret Service called Operation Sun Devil, a 1990 nationwide United States Secret Service crackdown on quote-unquote illegal computer hacking activities. 
It involved raids in approximately 15 different cities and resulted in three arrests and the confiscations of computers, the contents of electronic bulletin board systems, and floppy disks. I'm really fascinated by uh, cybersecurity and data privacy. And um, this is so fascinating to me specifically because of how, you know, at the time in the early 90s, internet, the internet was in its infancy, you know, the, the, the internet proper as a, as a, as a publicly available tool for anybody. Um, and, you know, not a lot of people understood it. It was a very specialized field. And, you know, nowadays everybody understands the internet, but at the time it was like, you really had to be specifically, you know, somebody who was a specialist in it to really fully understand what was going on. So there was a lot of a wild west kind of aspect to it where, People were going on the internet and doing things, but they didn't fully understand the repercussions of it. And then the government and law enforcement didn't know anything about it and they had no divisions devoted to it. So things like this would happen a lot. I've read so many stories similar to this where people got unfairly persecuted for things that were completely innocent because the, you know, the, the law enforcement bodies or government bodies that were, you know, that saw it or noticed it, they just didn't understand what it was. So, you know, they, they just were like, their reaction was completely disproportionate to what was actually going on. Yeah, you know what was unusual about my case? I had done absolutely nothing there or any place else. I'd been a very good boy all my life. And there was absolutely nothing that the government could bring up against me to discourage me from uh, from participating in a lawsuit. Most of these kids had some peccadillo in their history and were intimidated. I think that's also part of the reason why the this case has been tethered to the game so much because people who are looking for conspiracies and darkness everywhere don't, like they can't believe that you're like a normal person and an upstanding citizen and didn't do anything wrong and was were, were wrongly persecuted you know what i mean like they're they're just like oh it's connected the fact is there were dozens of people out there who got harassed much worse than i did and and for unjust reasons were unable to seek uh, seek redress yeah there was a there was a ton of people in the 90s who like went to prison because they just were interested in hacker stuff like they didn't actually do anything illegal. They just like were interested in hacking and they just like, the you know, somebody figured it out and saw them sending messages or whatever. And then they were just like, oh, you're a criminal. And they, and then people would go to prison for literally nothing. And, and even beyond that, I knew, well, well I guess I, friend of a friend knew uh, of people who, um, who had their little bulletin boards raided and uh, um, either lost their jobs or lost their promotion paths because word got around, oh, you know, the cops were at his place and they found all these floppies and they took the floppies away and God knows what's on them. Yeah, it's like a scarlet letter. And if you're working in a, a like a cyber security or data privacy job or anything that regard in, anything related to computers or the Internet, if you're just if, if it's like, oh, he's a hacker, he got arrested for this. Well, this was also back at the time when the it, it was less clear what the what the boundaries were, not just in terms of legally, but in terms of the different governmental agencies who were working on these things. The Secret Service was originally was originally created not to protect the president, as we most commonly think of it today, but to to um, to, to try and uh, to try and defeat counterfeiting at the very you know at, at the very end of the of, of the Civil War because the Confederate dollar wasn't worth anything, and so you had all these 
these people trying to counterfeit U.S. dollars. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, in fact, in, in that TV show, The Wild Wild West, the, the, the hero is a secret service agent who's trying to, to get counterfeiters. And so that in, ended up translating into, um, into a, a domain over wire fraud that this, 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 this the secret service had to try and you know, keep people from, from making fraudulent wires. And, uh, and they, they thought they would press their luck into saying that that gave them some, uh, some legal authority over, over hackers, and it didn't work out. A lot of jurisdiction over, over any, any crime on the Internet. Yeah. But uh, as, uh, as you can back up, Derek, uh, for, for years afterwards, and probably still, this case was taught in, in computer security courses to civilian and government investigators as don't do this. You see, you see this and this and this and this and this. Don't do any of them. The Secret Service raided SJ Games and Blankenship's home, but ultimately found nothing. However, as part of their raid, they had taken several important pieces of data, including the original manuscript for GURP Cyberpunk. And despite saying that they would return the drives containing these documents shortly after the raid, SJ Games ultimately didn't see them until several months later. And by that time, not having access to these important documents had actually significantly impacted the company's finances, which were already in bad shape before the raid had happened. You were seeking financial restitutions for this hit that your company had been take had taken from the raid. And I read that part of the defense from the Secret Service was that they had said that you guys were already in financial trouble before the raid happened. And that was just part of their rationale of why they didn't need to pay you money. That was one of the things that infuriated the judge because it was true. But that didn't make what they said. That didn't make what they did all right. Uh, in, in criminal law, the rule is you take your victim as you find them. You can't, you cannot beat up an old man and say, well, he was going to die soon anyway. Or you can, but the judge will get very displeased at you. <laughs> you get a very large number of pre-orders that were waiting on that book to, to come back from the printer, right? The, the, uh, yeah, we were depending on that book to turn around our financial situation. And what do you know? No book. All they had to do was let us alone and we could be successful as we are now. But they just about killed us. Yeah, I mean, I can't even. That that sounds like a, just a nightmare to me. In fact, they were still worried that there might be a copy uh, still in the printer that they took the printer as well. Yeah, I read. I read that they took laser printers, and I was like, was that just them not understanding what a printer was, or what? They took calculators. Yeah, how memory works, and yeah. Well, they they figured out how to put Doom on a graphing calculator, so that's not all. You know, <laughs> that was that was smart of them. Steve Jackson Games sued the Secret Service for damages arising from loss of revenue while the computers were in its custody. Steve Jackson and three other employees also sued for invasion of privacy, claiming the seizures were illegal under the Privacy Protection Act of 1980, Electronic Communications Privacy Act, and Stored Communications Act. There was nobody on, on site during the raid telling them what to take. They just were just like randomly. Well, there was the guy in charge of the raid, and he said, take everything. Looks like a computer, take it. If it's a room with a computer. Now, I'm making up dialogue now. Let me make that clear. But from the results, it was, if it looks like a computer, take it. Mm -hmm. If it's in a room with something that looks like a computer, take it. And if it's in a locked filing cabinet, try and pick the lock with a letter opener, which they had clearly done from the damaged letter opener and the scratches on the lock. I thought that was a really funny detail of the... Uh 
the documentation about the raid on your website that you included that that the letter openers were damaged because at first i was like that's a weird little detail to add but then i realized like oh it just it just makes them look so incompetent that they were just like how do we open this i don't know grab that thing and we'll try to jimmy it open or something like that's that's so funny to me <laughs> that's the dialogue in my head that's what it sounded like <laughs> <laughs> the, voice. the case came to trial in 1993 in the western texas district court SJ Games was represented by the Austin firm of George, Donaldson, and Ford, while the lead counsel was Pete Kennedy. SJ Games won two out of the three counts and was awarded $50,000 in statutory damages and $250,000 in attorney's fees. No compensatory damages were awarded because the judge said that Steve Jackson had little involvement in SJ Games at the time of the raid, and the company was close to Chapter 11 bankruptcy already, and that Jackson's renewed involvement in the wake of the raid had turned the company's fortunes around. They fought very hard. They really didn't want to lose. They, there, lots of interesting things happened, like a, a government employee who was going to be called as a witness taking early retirement, uh, which was all coincidence, of course. Sure, it was. Uh, but they lost, and they had to pay our court costs, which we were not bearing. It was the Electronic Frontier Foundation that stepped in and saved us, not to put too fine a point on it. The judge reprimanded the Secret Service, calling their warrant preparation sloppy, suggesting that they needed better education regarding relevant statutes, and finding that they had no basis to suspect SJ Games of any wrongdoing. The court case even led to the formation of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, which is a third-party watchdog group dedicated to defending individuals and new technologies from unlawful treatment by the government and law enforcement when it comes to data privacy and civil liberties in the internet age. Okay, so the raid had absolutely nothing to do with Illuminati then. It was a case of some incompetent Secret Service agents who had little grasp of the rapidly evolving world of data privacy and computer hacking that was exploding in the early 90s, trying to impress their bosses. So I guess the conspiracy theorists were wrong about that one. But it doesn't mean the rest of it isn't true. What about the cards? Those cards are too eerily accurate to deny that they didn't predict future events. Well, let's actually take a look back at them. Looking back at these cards, the first one rewriting history. Number one, this card is the least predictive of any of these cards. It's not predicting anything. It's really just it's establishing something that has happened in the past. So this one isn't even a predictor. But, you know, this idea that the Illuminati has purchased all of the textbook companies and is dumbing down our textbooks and adding misinformation into the books to make po the population dumber and docile and believing this misinformation, you know, that that's a theory that has existed for so long. But like every like every good conspiracy theory, all of these have a small kernel of truth in it. And you know, this one specifically I feel like is more germane to American life than some of the other ones just because we have areas of the country where entrenched bigotry and um racism is perpetuated on an institutional level. And so you have um state regulations where you know you, you can't teach certain things and you can't um you can't uh talk about the scientific facts around certain things uh because it in air quotes violates someone's religious rights which is not what this card is about but it is adjacent to that as we'll kind of wrap up with at the end of this that's kind of the central theme of this whole thing it's the whole that's the central thesis of this entire thing is that there's an emotional truth to all of this and and an emotional truth to all conspiracy theories kind of there's a reason why people believe in these things and buy into these things 
and the on its face factual nature of the of of these conspiracy theories is not accurate. It's all just a bunch of made up stuff that people have concocted and bought into. But the emotional truth of why they believe in these things is accurate. And this is, you know, this is a good example where it's like, no, there's no such thing as the Illuminati that bought all these textbook companies and is feeding us misinformation. But we are fed misinformation in our education system every day. It's just it's not from some evil satanic organization. Well, have these people not read George Orwell? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like the like this is not this is not prediction of some shadowy thing. It's just like it's science fiction. It's just it's it's a well-worn science fiction concept of spreading misinformation to control populations. Um the terrorist nuke card, we kind of you kind of touched on it when we first talked about it, but you know, this one, it's the most uncanny of all of them where like if if you are shown this card in the context that it predicted 9-11, you have an immediate visceral emotional reaction to this, which is like, holy shit, this was made in 1994 or 1996 or, you know, whatever. You have this knee-jerk reaction of like, maybe there's something to this, or at least I did. When I first saw this card and it was explained to me in the context of like this predicted 9-11, I was like, shit, what the fuck? And, I, and it sent me on this spiral of researching this and why we did this episode in the first place. But a second take, thinking about it a little, a little more critically, you realize the power of suggestion and the power of being led by a, a narrative because, you know, stripped of that context, if you were shown this card without the context of like this predicted 9-11, maybe you would make that connection. But ultimately, there's a little bit of a leap in logic if you really look at this and study it because number one, it's just two buildings. It's, it's not necessarily the Twin Towers. The only reason why it's evokes the Twin Towers is because it's two buildings next to each other and there's no other buildings in the shot. And it seems like it's taller than the rest of the buildings, but that could be a perspective thing. Maybe just the buildings in the background are just further away. And there's no plane flying into the building. It's just an explosion. And the the idea that it's a plane is just kind of you fill that blank in with your imagination. I feel like if you saw this and then went away to tell somebody about it, you might tell them that it was a plane crashing into them. But that, that detail is not actually correct. It's just an explosion. On the one hand, when you drill deeply into a lot of the conspiracy stuff, what you end up finding is that is that these these lines that people draw are really natural progressions of things that, that were already there. Um, because, you know, if you, you know, the, the year before that had happened, uh, sorry, the year before we, we put the card game out, uh, the World Trade Center had been bombed um, at its base. And so it seemed natural to think, oh, well, they're, they're not going to try that again. Um, <laughs> they'll, go, they'll go some other way. And, uh, and suitcase bombs were all the rage at the time. And people are always talking about these dirty, these dirty nukes, these suitcase nukes. And so that, that seemed more, more to be the kind of thing that would happen. But of course, people don't look at the historical context. They look at the car art and they say, wait, that came, that came out when? Oh my God. Same thing with the Pentagon artwork. Like the Pentagon artwork, like I can remember seeing, you know, whether this is true that I actually remember this or not, but I can emotionally remember footage, like helicopter footage of the Pentagon with like, parts of it destroyed and, and wreckage everywhere. Whether that's actually true or not, I don't know. Because I was, you know, a kid when it happened. But I I I have that um, I have the emotional mind's eye memory that I saw that and looking at this, like it looked in, in 
it doesn't look exactly like this, but in my head, like seeing that is like, oh, wow, weird. It It's very similar, you know? Somebody posted this on our Facebook group a while back. And, uh, you know, we, we have a couple listeners that maybe are more on the conspiratorial side. And so we had some discussion going on where people were saying like, somebody said like, oh, I think these are fake, which which is funny to me that there's some people that think that your card game is is like is like a hoax. Um, fake cards. Yeah. But uh, and somebody else was like, no, it's real. I, I talked about this card specifically and I said, you know, you can go through and you can break down each one of these cards and explain how it's not predictive. I'll, I'll focus on this one in, in, in specific and I'll say, okay, yeah, when 9-11 happened, they crashed a plane into the Pentagon. So you could say like, oh my God, like how did this predict this? And I'll tell you exactly how this predicted it. Because if there was a terrorist attack, a key strategy for enacting a terrorist attack would be to bomb the Pentagon. Like that's just, that would just be like in the terrorist playbook of how to launch a terrorist attack. Can I tell you what else is true, Andrew? Is that that a uh, when you're trying to make a collectible card game, um, an overhead shot of the Pentagon not doing anything is kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and if, if there was a way to punch it up so that it was a lot more dynamic, and uh, then then that would be more interesting for a, a game who, whose cards you want people to collect. I feel like you're telegraphing a a very specific horror story of you at three in the morning being like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> This has got to be turned in tomorrow. Um, unlike the the population reduction one, which is so funny that people point to that card as being a thing because it it just looks like generally like a spooky skyline with a cloud that's a skull. Like it's not. Yeah. And population reduction is once again, just a trope of conspiracy theories where there's always this belief that there are purposeful false flag catastrophes that are enacted by the government that are meant to kill people to, you know, reduce the population or control the population. And basically people have said that they're connecting this to the fact that whenever 9-11 happened, many people reported seeing a demon face in the smoke. And they were saying that this card predicts that, which I thought was funny because they were saying this was a demon, but it's clearly a skull. Like it's it's just not a demon, but they're but they're saying it's a demon. Well, I was surprised that they let the that they let the uh, the the Satanist skull uh, image uh, get broadcast out. I thought that the Illuminati would have been all over that. Honestly. Yeah. Well, it's that you that what you just said is such a it's a it's a synecdoche for a bigger idea, which is like if the Illuminati existed. Why would they leave clues in like pop culture for people to see and decipher? Like, why would they do that? It makes no sense. Ah, uh, if we knew that, we would understand them better, <laughs> wouldn't we? Yeah. And and you know, it just goes to show Steve Jackson's kind of um logical nature of his thought exercise when creating this that He's like, oh, there's probably going to be a pandemic someday. We had one back in 1918. There'll probably be another one again at some point. And uh, when that happens, people probably won't trust vaccines and the Center for Disease Control. And, you know, uh, misinformation will cause things to be warped, which is exactly what, you know, there's a card that's the Center for Disease Control about how this, the government is using it to manipulate circumstances and, and manipulate people, which is a fear of conspiracy theorists. Same thing with the epidemic card where it's a card that shows 
you know, a, a, you know, used PPE with like, um, you know, a, a mask and rubber gloves and a syringe and drugs and like, you know, a cross and these body bags laid out like very kind of evocative, but also the, the logical images that you would put there. It's not like it's, you know, it'd be one thing if it was like fucking, they drew Rudy Giuliani being a piece of shit to and like the epidemic card is just Rudy Giuliani with his hand on his dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, it's not, it's like, you know, when you look at this and you're like, how could they have known that would during a pandemic, people would need to wear masks. Now, if there was a, if there was a four seasons landscaping card, then like <laughs> yeah. we're going to Steve Jackson's office tonight. And then this combined disasters card where there's like a, a building with a clock on it that's collapsing and there's like, you know, smoke and fire ripping through the air and people running towards the camera. Like, you know, that's that's obviously, again, very evocative and, and jarring imagery. But I I don't I don't know that that's like, do we really? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is just that, like, this year in 2020 feels like this combined disasters thing. But once again, the idea of emotionally in first blush that could feel very uncanny but this concept of a moment when a bunch of different disasters happen at the same time is just once again a trope that has been talked about in conspiracy theory lore or theory or whatever you want to call it for so long well i'll tell you if a tower with a clock on it ever falls down anywhere you know who's <laughs> going to be blamed yep and it's the same thing with the with the kill for peace card a lot of these cards, like they're, they're they feel so uncanny in this vacuum of lack of context. You know, it's the same with the epidemic card. It's like, oh, like the reason why that rings so true for people is because they see this card. This is epidemic, even though it's a pandemic, which is different. But I guess same difference. And they see the mask on the cover and the gloves, and they're just like, holy shit! How did they know? But like you said before, there was there was a flu. There was a there was a pandemic in 1982, 1982, 1918. Well, it was there was one in 82 as well, but uh, it, it was wasn't referred to as a pandemic. It was referred to as flock of seagulls haircut. Oh, yes, of course. That, that was people refused to, to social distance. And we lost a, a lot of good people during that pandemic. The Aquanet plague of 85, man, I, I survived that. I was there. You don't know anything about the Aquanet. And that's why you don't allow your hair to be more than a half inch long. <laughs> yes. Yes. It totally wasn't because my hair was so long that it was like flopping in front of my face like this. No, it was, it was to keep the Aquanet away. Because what you I don't know if you know this, but once your hair grows beyond six inches, it just everyone's hair just naturally forms the flock of seagulls. Mm -hmm. And then seven days later, you die. Uh, but but yeah, the, the but aside from that horrible tragedy that we'll never forget, uh, hashtag never forget the 1918 Spanish flu, where there was a mask mandate. There were like we've done this before. This is like that's the thing. That's the reason why people think this is so predictive is because they just don't know that that happened. We've literally already done this before in the United States. This whole thing played out already. Except for it was worse because we didn't have modern medicine. There was there was a pandemic. People were dying. I, I, th I think millions of people died. I forget the number. I, that might be inaccurate. But 
a ton of people died. There was mask mandates. People were were required to wear face masks in public. There were anti-maskers who protested wearing masks. There were certain cities who better adopted the social distancing and they flattened the curve. And there were certain cities that didn't and they had more deaths. Like we literally already did this in 1918. We did this exact same thing. And so, you know, number one, when you see this card, that's why it's not surprising or why it's not predictive. And number two, it just goes to further explain this idea that like we repeat our mistakes because people just don't learn about the past and so it's doomed to repeat itself but yeah and yeah but the but the kill for peace card is the same thing where it feels so prescient of this of this these current protests and the conflicts between the protesters and the and law enforcement and the way that the overton window has moved into this area where we're questioning the role of police within our society And it feels like it's so specifically this event that's happening right now. Once again, that is just in the vacuum of ignorance. That is this stuff has happened before this. I mean, this this card is specifically depicting the peace hippie protests that happened during the Vietnam War. I'm I'm into I'm into this guy's pants, though. I'm into his orange bell bottoms. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing bell bottoms haven't come back in because if they do, we'll get blamed for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are real lucky that the 70s fashion didn't come back in right before the protest started. And then, yeah, I mean, I, the, the rapture thing, I, this doesn't even require analysis. This is just being fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just I really wanted to I really wanted to go through and like hype up the uncanny nature of these cards and almost kind of like trick the audience into feeling like these cards really seemed like they did predict it and then just kind of go back and be like, actually, if you really pay attention to these and look closely and think about it for three seconds, it's all just conjecture and filling in the blanks and using your imagination and looking for patterns where it's not. Um, because yeah, the, the first the first go around is loose change, man. Have you ever seen loose change? And then the, and then this, this, the second go around is fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> the new the new deep cuts catchphrase <laughs> it's caught on pretty well like i walk down the street sometimes people are like yo dave fucking stupid sometimes they confuse me for you and they do it to me and i just let them and i sign i sign your name on on their bacon and legs vhs's i just let it happen but yeah i i, I wanted to do that because that's really what we should all do in any critical thinking examining any piece of information whether it's as crazy as these conspiracy theories sound or even much more reasonable rational real sounding information that requires researching and verifying if something feels emotionally true to you don't give in to that immediate knee-jerk instinct take a second look at it examine it more closely do some research and not the fake do your research research where you watch a YouTube video with scary music for an hour, like real research where you look at studies and read a bunch of different sources of information to triangulate a truth. And I really wanted to recreate that experience of like becoming convinced that something is true because it feels emotionally true and then going back and reassessing it. Start with the, oh shit, I can't believe I didn't know this. And then end with fucking stupid. (laughs) 
how do you guys feel about this aspect of the game? Like the fact that this happened, um, that people believe that you have some sort of secret connection to the Illuminati and you're leaving breadcrumbs. You've, you've, you've talked about how you've dealt with it, but how do you guys feel about this? The fact that this has sort of come into existence with this game that you guys made? I regret it because it's people being crazy, but it wasn't predictable. Or maybe it was predictable, but I'm not the one who predicted it. There's a different card game that predicted that this would happen. Right, right. That would be the meta Inwo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> results of Inwo. And so we see how an idea can take on a life of its own. At every step of the way, from 1980 when Steve Jackson started his company, to 1983 when he conceived of and released the first version of Illuminati, to the early 90s when Derek Piercy brought the idea of a CCG to Jackson. Nowhere along the way did anyone ever stop and think, hmm, maybe we're going to radicalize a bunch of nut jobs to basically create a religion around our game. And yet here we are. Steve Jackson is no secret cult agent sowing hidden messages into pop culture for legions of the awake to interpret. He's a super nerdy dude who likes postmodern satire and card games. All these articles and documents about Inwo's prophetic nature all describe Jackson as a shrouded, elusive recluse who never shows his face or gives interviews, which adds to the mystique and fuels the shadowy nature of the story. But it's not true at all. Jackson gives interviews all the time. We just emailed him and he agreed to do this one in less than 24 hours. In reading up a lot about this, the, pe- the true believers, quote unquote, the people who believe in this stuff, I, I've seen this, this message pop up a lot, this sentiment pop up a lot, where Steve you were kind of regarded by these people whenever they talk about it as this like elusive figure who who's never seen and you know never gives interviews and that's sort of part of the mythology of it is and it's it it feeds it where you know there's this belief it's going to spoil their day isn't it yeah and it's like <laughs> and i and i find that so funny because it's like it's like you know don't you watch tabletop like this guy, this guy does interviews all the time. They're just in the world of tabletop uh, game playing. And, and it's so funny to me that like these people think that you're elusive and never give interviews simply because they're not gamers and they just don't see these interviews that you give constantly. It harkens back to this idea that like a lot of these conspiracy theories are are grown in a vacuum of of ambiguity and ignorance where, you know, People will uh, also, it's not interesting that I'm a regular guy, that I do interviews, and that there, there was nothing mysterious or sinister, but it would be very interesting if I were an elusive figure that predicted uh, the future and nobody can find and talk to. That's interesting, and that's the story that gets told. <laughs> I think people find it comforting as well. It's sort of the... Uh, it's, it's both there is someone out there who's important and then there's there is some force out there that is in charge that is controlling things and making things happen we are in good hands we're not nihilistically flying around on a on a sphere through space how can you look around and think we're in good hands well I didn't say I thought that <laughs> right. how can anybody look around and think we're in good hands Cthulhu is already here yeah oh, for sure well, exactly, because because it's like you have one. You could you could either believe one or two things. You could either believe that, uh, you know, the 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 structures and the infrastructures and systems put in place to run our society are just, you know, 
dysfunctional and not firing on all cylinders. And there are certain people within that infrastructure that are not doing their jobs properly that have, you know, are either incompetent or have, you know, some malevolent intentions behind what they're doing. And it's this big, ugly, random mess of dysfunction that is leading to society's woes, which is like an insurmountable problem. It's like, how do you solve that? How do you how do you fix that? There are so many disparate elements or you can believe that it's all one thing. It's all being orchestrated by one group of people. And if you cut the heads off of those people, everything becomes great again or everything becomes great in in the first place. Um, and it's it's like it's so it's so easy to want to believe that that it creates it it creates these huge movements and these huge groups of people that subscribe to these ideas because it's just so easy to believe. Like I said, like I said earlier, you can poke holes in this idea that the game predicted these events and it's all part of this uh, grand manifesto of the 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 new world order coming into 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 form by just saying like you're just talking about 14 cards out of 425 like what about the other 425 those ones just were filler like what like what is going on there but you you just ignore that because it's it's so easy to believe you just package up those 14 cards and you show those and it's like oh nope like literally that article that you were, were talking about the article that was on bin laden's computer it's called smoking gun proof that the illuminati exists like how is that smoking gun proof? It's like you have to. There's so much conjecture that has to in, be involved. Crack. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, and, and, and every time there's something new, like the like the the the, the events in, in Las Vegas, then people surface and they go, "Wait a second, was there a Las Vegas card?" Oh my lord. Yeah. And they they, they see what there is. To uh, to read into that, and uh, okay, that one was creepy, uh, but it's still it's it was it was rolling dice. Yeah, well, I don't know if you meant that to be a pun or not, but <laughs> uh, good good choice of words. Derek Piercy, the one mostly responsible for the game existing, too, is just a soft spoken game geek. These people do not fulfill the roles they've been cast in by the New World Order Doomsday crowd in the slightest, but they don't have to. They never did. They never even needed to be a part of it. It was their idea. That's what these people worship. It's taken on its own momentum and left Steve Jackson games behind. It's bigger than these men and women, or the cards it was printed on, or even the people who believe in the conspiracy. It's a symbol and a conduit for the extreme distrust that people place in the surface details of a world that feels increasingly manufactured and insidious to them on a daily basis. And to be honest, they aren't necessarily wrong. But the ugly truth is that the real problems within our reality are more complicated more random, harder to solve, and less sexy than the stories they tell themselves. An Illuminati can be overthrown and their plans foiled. Hundreds of years of systemic corruption spiderwebbing throughout every aspect of our society, government, and culture in fractured and disconnected ways isn't so easy to tackle. It can't be neatly fit on a bunch of 2x3 trading cards. And though these problems get worse, more complicated, and more insurmountable to solve as time progresses, we also become worse at recognizing them and being able to work together to fight them in tangible ways. Who needs the Illuminati to keep us down when we have each other? Fucking stupid!
That's a good transition. So you're developing a video game version of Illuminati. Tell us a little bit about that, how that came to be, a little bit of what it's going to be like, and you know, talk about the Kickstarter and anything else you want to talk about. I never really imagined Illuminati as a as a game that would be easy to make a video game of. I never thought it would actually be possible. And then I, I started mulling over some ideas, and Steve was very encouraging, and um, and that's and that's where that went. We have a Kickstarter um, kicking off in the next uh, about week and a half or so. Um, we hope to have the game out. Um, by the middle of next year for, for general availability. Um, it's based on Illuminati New World Order, which is the, the largest version of the, the game in terms of number of cards. It'll take us a little while to scale out to that, the same number of cards uh, that, we had, that we had with Inmo, but um, um, it's certainly been the most fun thing I've worked on in decades, literally. So. It's multiplayer. It's going to be on Steam. Uh, what are the other vital statistics? Um, the art itself is that the, the card art is is two dimensional, but the playing field is is, uh, is three dimensional. The way that we're doing the art is is I think fairly novel. Where uh, one of the things that people like so much about the Illuminati art, um, people keep coming back to is you know how how much detail there is in it and how how people can you know, you know, see what they sometimes just want to see in it. One of the key game mechanics in Illuminati is that different groups have different alignments. They're conservative or liberal, like Steve's mentioned before. They're peaceful or violent or, or neither. And the more alignments a group has in common with another group, then the easier it is to, to connect them together. You don't have to spend as much energy or power in order to, to get them together. And that's and each Illuminati is building their own power structure. Uh, the, you know, the CIA controlling the, the controlling the, P, the, the Pentagon, controlling the convenience stores who control the Boy Sprouts. And what people had always wanted to do was to change alignments between these groups. With printed card, it's a little harder to, to meaningfully do that. I mean, we came up with several ways to do that, but it wasn't the, the easiest, most apparent thing. And because what you're doing is also trying to count how many cards of a certain type I have and, and perform the quick math on what it takes to link them together, you end up doing a lot of accounting in your head while you're playing the game. In, in a computer game, it can just do all of that for you. And so you can just focus more on, on, on your strategy. Um, perhaps uh, more interestingly, instead of just having this, instead of just making it easy to say, this group is now conservative instead of liberal, you can actually change the card art. So we have different layers of, of art for different, uh, for different alignments the groups could have. So if the televangelists um, become, become weird, then the stained glass window behind the televangelist becomes this, this dark purple Cthulhu stained glass window instead of a more, you know, more traditional Judeo-Christian stained glass window. So yeah, as of this episode dropping on Wednesday the 11th, the Kickstarter hasn't officially gone live, but if you want to check it out, the game's called Illuminati Confirmed. It is a video game card game, similar to if you were to play a video game version of Magic the Gathering, or if you're playing Hearthstone, or Teppin, or any of these uh, digital card games. Triple Triad from Final Fantasy VIII, shout out to that. So yeah, you can check out the Kickstarter page before it goes live and set a reminder so it'll tell you when it does drop by either checking the link in the description or just typing into a browser bit.ly.com slash inwo video game. 
I-N-W-O video game. That'll take you directly to the Kickstarter page where you can check out some of the pre-launch information about it and uh, be alerted whenever it actually drops. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me at heydavebaker.com where you can buy books like Action Hospital, Fuck Off Squad, Action Hospital 2, Half-Light Bleeds, Action Hospital 3, No More Walls, yet there's still something between us. Uh, maybe the first issue of Seven's Reckoning. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to put it up there. Maybe I'm not. If not, you can go to a comic book store because it comes out the day this podcast drops, I think. Comes out the 11th. This comes out on the 11th, right? Sure. Yes. All right. Yeah. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me collecting the hidden plans of a shadowy deep state organization that's hidden behind every major event in the world's history, slowly leaking it to the public in the trading card game form for some reason that I can't even really fully rationalize why I would be doing this. If I was a member of the Illuminati, why would I be giving clues to people about our plans that we're implementing behind the scenes in secret? Um, And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye, which no matter what time this episode drops, it's out. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Pseudocide whose new album, Don't Let Them See You Bleed, is out now. And you can listen by checking the link in the description or by typing in bit.ly.com slash pseudocide. bit.ly.com slash p-s-e-u-d-o-c-i-d-e. And the Dead Boy Detectives, who... Screw me, boo-ja-coo-me. I said screw me, boo-ja-boo-me. Screw me, boo-ja-coo-me. I said a screw be boo Basically like Africa by Toto on my planet. A genuine bop. But vaguely racist in a way that you can't quite put your finger on. Anyway, back to the music.